0: This is Gospel Bound, a podcast from the Gospel Coalition for those searching for resolute hope in an anxious age. Wherever you're listening from, welcome. I'm your host, Colin Hanson, and I'm glad you're here for today's conversation. In his day job for the last 15 years, Daniel Strange has taught church leaders about culture, worldview, and apologetics. He studied worldviews and philosophy. He talks about plausibility structures and social imaginaries and cultural liturgies. But it's not some kind of vain philosophical exercise. He's trying to help people grow in how they present the person and work of Jesus to their skeptical neighbors. After years as director of Oak Hill Theological College in London, he now directs Crosslands Forum, a center for cultural engagement for mission. And he's the author of the new book, Making Faith Magnetic, Five Hidden Themes Our Culture Can't Stop Talking About and How to Connect Them to Christ, published by The Good Book Company. In this book, he tries to help non-Christians find their way to God through the darkness of a skeptical age. He writes this, in the 21st century West, in our version of this history, God is the one who has done the hiding, and we are the seekers. And God must have found a great place to hide because we've looked for him everywhere, but he's nowhere to be seen. Strange features five magnetic points that he thinks can help non-Christians connect to Jesus. His book explores totality, norm, deliverance, destiny, and higher power. And In this episode of Gospel Bound, we'll talk about J.H. Bovink. The totality, goth culture, disenchantment, and more. Dan, thank you for joining me on Gospel Bound. Uh, it's great to
1: be with you, Colin. Hi, everyone. Hi.
0: <laughs> Let's just start with J.H. Bavink. Who is he? How did he help inspire this project?
1: Yeah, so uh, J.H. Bavink was a, uh, a missionary, really. He was the nephew of Herman Bavink. So some of you may have heard of Herman Bavink, who wrote the, the dogmatics and the hundred other things. But his nephew was J.H. Uh, he was a missionary in Indonesia in the first half of the 20th century. He ended up teaching at the Free University of uh, Amsterdam. Um, he 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 did some lectures in the States uh, towards the end of his life that was posthumously published in a book called The Church Between Temple and Moss, which I've just found out is going to be redone by Westminster Press ne- next year. Oh, great. Um, and I think there's a bit of a lineage, um, so as uh, Gospel Coalition readers, uh, listeners will know, that J.H. Uh, Bavinck influenced Harvey Kahn and then con was of course tim keller's teacher so there's a kind mm. of a um a lineage that that, that goes down but I, I found his writings incredibly uh, helpful on this issue of religious consciousness and the theological anthropology his his focus babik's focus was always on i think what we'd call other world religions so what i think a number of us have been trying to do is to try and try and transpose that into a more kind of post-christian secular context because i'd still think the the same truths are there about human beings, but so I I, I continue to find him a very stimulating thinker and a, a, and a very godly thinker as well.
0: Let's jump into one of those magnetic points of the totality. Uh, explain the tension in in this magnetic point. Give us some of the background on that one.
1: Yeah, so all the so all of the magnetic points, and there's Bavinck says there's five of them. These kinds of um, itches that human beings have to scratch, they all come from. Um, in Romans 1 where it says that God has revealed his uh, e- uh, eternal power and divine nature and Bavinck says why does Paul focus on those two qualities and he says eternal power has to do with the fact that as human beings we are dependent and divine nature is that we are accountable to not a something or an it but a someone so these ideas of dependence and accountability we suppress, it, we suppress the the truth about God with those, but you, we can never escape them. They're part of what it means to be human. We are, we always know that at some level we're dependent upon something or someone and we're always accountable. And the magnetic points are just a kind of uh, an articulation, an anatomy of what comes out of that revelation that God has revealed in us being his image bearers. So totality, um, this question of, is there a way to connect is the first of, the, of those points. And it kind of, it trades on the idea that uh, uh, on one of the we, we want connection as human beings to something someone some group and it's this um tension that you can is expressed can be expressed at the highest philosophical level but also a kind of street philosophy as well on the one hand as human beings we know that we are individually insignificant we're just specks who are we those kinds of existential anxiety questions that we can have on the other hand we know that we're significant and when when we connect with everything else we can sense almost a sense of reality flowing through us and it's that kind of tension between significance and insignificance that Bavink picks upon and that what I'm trying to do in in the making faith magnetic book is just to show in the normal lives that uh, that western people lead especially they're always they're always kind of scr- um, it- itching that totality scratch we, we want connection, whether it's a, um, a sports event or a music event or um, uh, a Comic-Con convention or LGBTQ pride march. Uh, the, the way that we want to look at um, family histories because we want a sense of rootedness of significance and, uh, and identity. And we kind of oscillate between significance and insignificance. And again, Bavink's just making the point that people wouldn't call those activities religious, but they are very religious as we struggle with this um this question of um connectedness so that's that point of totality
0: let's look at the sporting match as an example there how do we convey that the transcendent experience of that type of event is nothing compared to what christians experience in church so how do you how do you bridge to that point to say hey this is part of a longing that you have and but that longing is better suited for the church and what Christians experience yeah. there. How do you how do you go about helping people to see that?
1: So I think on on the one hand it's the recognition that um, those experiences that people have and long for, we know, don't we? When we have that kind of when the people have those experiences, that the next day, you know, if they have it on at the weekend, Monday morning it's back to work again, and then you're you're waiting for that experience again. You crave that connection. And it's kind of, you know, how do you find it again? And people look for that connection in all kinds of things. I think I would want to then be making the point about is our and and, and if our identity is linked to that, if we kind of crave for it, um, uh, it doesn't. It look in the long term, it doesn't. It does not satisfy. Um, and so I would be wanting to look at other ways to explore what I, what identity means, especially um, not just communion with God, but community with the Church in terms of you know those sporting events or those things where we feel apart it's often because there's sameness but of course the amazing thing about the church is that it's it's unity and diversity at, at the same time what other human organization brings together such a, a diverse group of people but also a united group of people and i think that that idea of connection especially if it's if this if this idea of identity where do i find my identity and this is where the Christian gospel, as as a phrase that you know, I'm sure will come up in the conversation. This idea of subversive fulfillment. Um, we're we're looking it in order to find our identity to become in Christ. We have to die to ourselves. So it's that kind of idea of um, uh, you know d- dying to live. And even this concept of the image of God. You, you remember, if if connection, if this is idea of we're insignificant but we're significant at the same time. This is where good theology just really helps us. The doctrine of the image of God deals with that issue completely. On the one hand, we're not God. We're only images, but we're images of God. We both have significance and insignificance. And I think any big kind of um, sporting event or any idea where we want to kind of seek roots and rootedness, the idea to be able to... um, say that you know as it says in you know one Peter that our family tree could be traced back before the foundation of the world I mean that's a great lineage the fact that we're engrafted into a new community um, all those things are, are are wonderful truths for people who are spending their time because they don't know who they are they're grasping on for meaning and identity in their in their in their soccer club in their in their kind of their own um, maybe sexuality and gender and so social group uh, and 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 they're not going to find lasting fulfillment there, but we can show another identity, but it does mean a dying to self and a rising to eternal life
0: where do you where do you stand on the question of whether or not this world this modern world is disenchanted?
1: Yes, a great question uh. well, yes, yeah.
0: Well, I mean, well, it, it doesn't, it doesn't seem like the desire for the supernatural has diminished, but it does seem like it's not, there's not much of a hunger to direct that toward theism.
1: Yes. So I, I, the way that I'm talking about it at the moment, it's a little bit trite, Colin, but I, I say, it's not that we're in, it's not that we're disenchanted. It's that we're enchanted, we're differently enchanted in the, right. in the book. And I'm sure you've picked up about this. I try mm-hmm. and kind of juxtapose, um, Charles Taylor, who's I know you've done a, a lot of work on right. the idea of disenchantment, but also someone like Rodney Stark, who Rodney mm-hmm. Stark makes this comment about Taylor. He says, you know, all the research Stark does seems to point to the idea that we're as enchanted as we ever be. People believe all kinds of like crazy stuff, and um, Stark makes this very cutting comment that you know Taylor's research just shows how you know uh, one has a uh, has a straight uh, has a a kind of limited view of things from the faculty lounge is quite a <laughs> comment. But I, I think in some ways, what I want to say is both, both are true. There's certainly a way in which we are more disenchanted and uh, this idea of exclusive humanism. And I, I do think that's the case, but even Taylor, towards the end, it's the idea that, you know, the secular is, is haunted and we mm. find as human beings, it very difficult to go with the John L- Lennon, you know, above us is only sky imagine song and so it's it's more where we look and i think when we start looking we do see and i think that the magnetic points bear this out that people are as in, as are differently enchanted there is a striving for transcendence and it comes out in weird and wonderful places it doesn't necessarily come out in conventional religion but uh, if we are made if we're humans made in god's image then i i want to argue theologically that that kind of um Running to and running away from God—that kind of sense of the divine that Calvin talks about, the the kind of people of Athens you're very religious that Paul talks about—will always come out somewhere, and we just have to know where to look in our particular context. Um, but there are, there's always kind of traction. There's always a, um, a way to kind of get in there, um, and and so. Um, I want to kind of I respect Taylor a lot, but I, I I also want to recognize the um the 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 biblical truth about human beings and their religiosity that I think is really important and that is meant is meant to encourage us to say, look, your non-Christian friend may have no time to talk about any of the things you want to talk about, but we have to look with a biblical lens. These are religious people living religious lives, and the magnetic points are the way that they kind of ex- is a framework for us to understand how they express that religiosity
0: dan i would have thought that death would be considered the great leveler I, w- I would have thought that's the that's the thing that causes a great deal of consternation or concern among skeptics of religion that could be one of these points that we draw to to say hey we all know how this is going to end let's talk about what this means why doesn't that seem to be working?
1: Um I think though, I mean I th- I wonder though whether Colin whether the, the the pandemic has kind ca- of especially has um has raised that question a little more than it has in terms of our mortality especially. I mean again, I think the way that we suppress the the, the one way of suppressing the Romans one truth is to say death we just kind of ignore death, especially in our Western context. Um, But I think that there is a recognition or there can be a recognition that we are, we are mortal. And um, in some ways, because people haven't known how to deal with life, then the bare preservation of life at all costs becomes almost this, what I think um, Rusty Reno talks about, you know, the idolatry of life that you just preserve life at all costs because because you are worried about death.
0: So I can can see that. I mean, just just to jump in here, I can see that. But the way, at least in the American context, the pandemic has been largely understood is it has been mapped not on a societal or individual fear of death, but on the blaming for unnecessary death or hindrances on the people you already hated going into the pandemic. So I, I just I would have thought something like this would make everybody sit and think, oh, wow, how capricious life seems to be. And yet what it seems to have done for them is say, not see my enemies, I knew they were bad, but now they're so bad that they actually just want to kill me. Um, they're actually trying to kill me actively because there's some sort of death cult. I, it just surprised me that there hasn't been more of a, wow, okay, so I could die. What does that mean then? Yeah. I don't know how you – it could be different in your context.
1: So. Yeah, it, it might be, although I think – I'd be interested to know whether people think that they um, – one of the magnetic points is, is this idea of destiny, which is really talking about the relationship between our freedom, our responsibility, and uh, – or whether things are determined. And I wonder whether it's interesting that the way that you um, articulated Mm -hmm. how people want to blame others in some ways, that is a, that is a shifting of responsibility, isn't it? Away from myself and my own personal responsibility um, towards blaming others and to say that, you know, what can I do about this? So it's interestingly, that kind of power dynamic maybe speaks to another magnetic point as much as it Mm. does about this idea of deliverance. Um, and so, yeah, maybe that's another way. De- Death—you, you, you maybe think the subject of death might fit the deliverance kind of magnetic point. I wonder whether it hits more than that. It, it, it hits of a, a few of them, um, but yeah, a very interesting comment in your kind of in that American context.
0: Well, I had a, I had a question about your deliverance point yeah. there, and I'm wondering: do you think, do you think broadly speaking, people expect deliverance? Or is it really the fight, the pursuit, huh. the, what keeps us going with a sense of purpose and infuses our lives with meaning?
1: Uh, well, I, I don't think it has to be a, an either or. I mean, I think there's obviously there's, there's, I think we look for many deliverances all, all the time in the sense of there's 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 a way there's deliverance can be just any way that we think the world isn't as it should be. As soon as you say the world isn't as it should be, you must have a goal as to what you think the world should should be. And those kind of hope, the hope narrative or the hope arc there is is in existence. So whether it's a mini deliverance of, can I just get through the day? How am I going to sleep through the night to what happens to me when I die? I mean, there's all those, there, there is deliverance there. But yeah, I, I think what, along with that then is, I think as soon as you have, some kind of quest or story, then you are trying to kind of you're you're living through it. So I wonder whether it's it, it's a both and. But the I mean the idea of de- deliverance or not just looking forward, but a longing or looking back. I mean that's a very ancient tradition. I mean the the, the illustration that I always think about is the Romantics who used to build ruins. They built ruins because it was <laughs> of a, you know this was going back to a you know the Arthurian legends, and there was a sense of history and the world, a world that has been lost. Um, what what I find interesting with the deliverance thing is how that fits in with a love for kind of dystopia. And we seem to, we mm. love our dystopia. And maybe that's because there's a lot, a lot of mixed things going on there about um, what I want to be free from uh, the world as it is at the moment, and even in the dystopian world, the idea that I could make up my own rules, I could make up my yeah. own laws, um, there's a kind of a, a kind of a, a, a freeing of oneself, even in a kind of a anti-law dystopian society. But it seems it's very interesting that people seem to crave after those dystopian narratives. You'd think people would want some kind of utopian narrative. But there's, I think there's a lot of complex things going on there.
0: Well, we never imagine ourselves in the dystopian stories as the billions who were wiped out. Yeah, exactly. That's the issue. We're always the lone hero so, who survives. Yeah.
1: And that heroic quest is kind of perennial, isn't right. it, in terms of who, who we think we are?
0: This episode of Gospel Bound is brought to you by Crossway in Sam Alberry's new book, What God Has to Say About Our Bodies, How the Gospel is Good News for Our Physical Selves. There's a danger in focusing too much on the body. There's also a danger in not valuing it enough. In this book, Sam Albury explains that all of us are fearfully and wonderfully made and should regard our physicality as a gift. He offers biblical guidance for living, including understanding gender, Sexuality and identity, dealing with aging, illness and death, and considering the physical future hope that we have in Christ. Pick up a copy wherever books are sold, or visit Crossway.org/plus to find out how you can get 30% off and a free copy of the ebook. yeah yep. right. so well, that that leads to the question about destiny. Do you think it's more comforting for people to know that they control their destiny or that they don't?
1: Oh well, I, I think this is I think this is the I think again, I think it's a both and. I think this is what Baving puts his fingers on. He has finger he has this great little statement where he says, we both think that we lead our lives and undergo our lives. we We want autonomy. But on the other hand, because we're not God and we're not kind of the masters of our own destiny in that sense, sometimes we like to know that we don't have the responsibility. So that idea of determinism sometimes is very attractive to us because, you know, in the illustration you gave before, it's not my fault. It's the government's fault. It's, you know, uh, my education. It's my genes. I mean, that's the other as in my biological genes, as in, as in, you know, I can't I can't help it. And again, it's always that, going back to Romans 1, it's always that tension between dependence and accountability. We want to be accountable, but we don't want to be accountable. And it's how then the Christian gospel says God is sovereign, God is in control, not as a despot, but as a loving heavenly father, but also that we do have responsibility. And it's, again, in some ways, the that destiny magnetic point is just another version of the sovereignty, responsibility thing that theologians discuss, but that's a very right. theological magnetic point. So I think in answer to your question, I think it, it when it suits us, sometimes we want to think that we are free completely of anything. On the other hand, sometimes it's very convenient to say, what could I do? I, I was just, you know, I'm just the kind of the, it's just the circumstances that I couldn't do any, anything other. And it, I think it's only a Christian worldview that can really break through that to show that, one, God is sovereign, and two, we have responsibility, and both of those things have to be believed and trusted.
0: Let's talk about another tension here, and maybe you could now then explain some of what you mean by subversive fulfillment and apply it to this issue. How does our society reconcile this need, this right to freedom, our desire for an inclusive society marked by tolerance, well, at the same time demanding justice be done.
1: Yeah. So subversive fulfillment is uh, again I can't I can't claim all, all the credit for it. It was a phrase <laughs> by um just used once by a, a very famous missiologist called Hendrik Kramer who was writing at the turn of the 20th century in these big missionary conferences and he was really concerned that people were starting to say that Hinduism and Buddhism and Islam they were kind of Uh, Christianity was the fulfillment these were stepping stones in the right direction but Jesus was the fulfillment and Kramer says Jesus is completely different he's radically different but if you want to use the the word fulfillment talk about subversive fulfillment and as a theological context uh, concept I found it very um pregnant to be developed and really I go back to the one Corinthians one passage where Paul says we preach Christ crucified which is it's foolishness it's the radical Rejection of everything the world thinks, and yet there's co- so there's confrontation, but there's also connection. So why does Paul spend time talking about group, Jews and Greeks who have different uh, worldviews, different desires, hopes, dreams? And there's a sense in which we can say how Greeks are looking for uh, wisdom and Jews are looking for power. Jesus Christ crucified is the opposite. You know, a, a crucified savior. Is, is disgusting for both Jews and Greeks. But Paul can still say Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So it does connect, but it also confronts. So subversive so fulfillment is this idea that the gospel both confronts and connects at the same time. I think some of the problems, some of the problems that Christians have, evangelical has sometimes, is that sometimes they major on the confrontation. And not the connection, and at other times right. they major on the connection, but not the confrontation. Right. And I think we need to do both. So, in answer to your question, it, it's to see how all of those um, cultural themes that that we are dealing with, the gospel, the Christ crucified, says something completely opposite, but it also connects. It 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 does give uh, so inclusivity. Only the gospel gives the inclusivity. Without that. They'll just be kind of a, a horrid exclusivity. One, one of the um, one of the things I, I'm uh, I've been looking at uh, recently. I, I did it for, a, for Melios editorial. Is this the theme of disappointment? And in there's a there's a strange great game in the UK. You may have called it, heard of it called cricket. You don't need to worry. About it. Anyway, <laughs> there's a guy who's been playing for the British uh, the English team, and he got suspended. He's a 27 year old, and he got um, suspended because he when he was 19 he'd kind of written two tweets that were racist and misogynist. And people were saying, just because of those two tweets, eight years later, he should never be able to play cricket again. And it was interesting, at the same time as that was going on, uh, again, Charles Taylor wrote this really interesting essay called um, Catholic Modernity, where he says, the problem with humanism is that it thought it was doing humanity a service by taking away the doctrine of sin and total depravity. But what it does, if you take those things away... The bar then for humanity is so high yeah. that when we can't meet it, the only way that, that we can do it is eventually through coercion because we can't deal with any kind of failure. And so in this cultural example of, of the cricketer, to, know, to, to understand that the Christian worldview in this way, failure and disappointment is actually a life-giving thing because it recognizes that there can be failure, but there is also restoration. Jesus as the norm is both the standard, but the saviour from the standard. So I think in all of these ways, we start to see how a full Christian anthropology in terms of creation and fall and redemption um, and the concept of forgiveness can answer the issue of cancel culture, can answer these issues because it it, it wants to say there is a standard, of course, but there's also a kind of a savior as well. So in any one of, of these issues, I think it's trying to show how the gospel Kind of turns the turns the issue on its head, the issue on its head, subversively. But it also then does want to answer the questions. It does want to deal with issue because you know, I do want us to live in a peaceful, inclusive society. Um, but it's it it's where where are you getting your norms or your standards to, to to judge where those things are? And Jesus says, you know, Jesus says, you know, He He is the standard, and He is the savior when we don't meet the standard, and that's the wonderful thing which which I think does affect apologetics in some ways, because I think, you know, 20 years ago, I think you people would have understood that there was a norm, 10 commandments, and then you fall from them, and then you need someone. Now you need to do a double shift. It's to show that Jesus gives us the standard a, a, yeah. a, around all these other standards that people want, but also he's the savior to the standard as well. So I, mm. I think that's where it's particularly helpful.
0: You also do a great job in making faith, faith magnetic of... Going after the concept or engaging with the concept of expressive individualism. I'm not. I'm not sure if you use that concept, but where I saw it come through or use that term, because I saw it come through in what you wrote about goth culture, and so the way you describe this is: it goth culture is countercultural, and yet by definition also conformist because there is a standard by which everybody must dress. Goth culture doesn't mean you do whatever you want. It means you have to dress this certain way or use this kind of eyeshadow or listen to this kind of music. Yeah. You can tell I'm somebody who uh, grew up in the 90s. I'm well familiar <laughs> with goth-, goth culture and Marilyn Manson and all that kind of stuff right there. Yeah, yeah. That really but it really communicated to me. Just explain what you mean by that. Illustration again, you didn't use the concept of expressive individualism, but it's right. that same well, idea that yeah. everybody's being individual and needs to, you know, they're all doing their own thing, expressing that and being accepted that way. And in the end, they actually all look the same, well, so they're it, not really so, individualist. So the, so,
1: the magnetic point at the end of the day says there are always norms that we want to seek to conform to, yeah. and even countercultural rebels have their own rules for rebellion. And so this was an illustration that a student sent me about the goth culture where goths are trying to be non-conformist, but they have to non-conform in exactly the same way. And uh, then it it gets quite intricate because the the illustration I use is I didn't know this at all. Apparently, if you're kind of an in-goth, an accepted goth, you can wear baby pink. But if someone who isn't a proper goth wears baby pink, they'll be seen to be kind of out of out of the kind of the group, so I mean, I mean, C.S. Lewis writes this about in the 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 inner ring. It's just a kind of right. a, a, inner a, ring, a version yeah. of of that. But it's it's this yeah. constant idea that there are no, there are norms. Now, these aren't always biblical norms. They're norms that obviously sometimes we socially construct. Um, but there, I think that idea of the norm is is there a way to live even in a very radical counterculture way? there still has to be some kind of conformity because we still want to conform. Um, and so that, that's, uh, again, that's one of these perennial um, human tr- truths about what it means to be human in, in God's image, that those kinds of standards are are there. The, the, the concept of a standard is there, a concept of wanting to conform.
0: We, um, we still want to fit in. Yeah, exactly. We still want to have a home. We still yeah. want to have a community where we are accepted i think you could have applied this in the same way to different aspects of the of the gay community yeah Um, very similar there's it's non-conformist in a in certain ways (laughs) and you have to conform to those ways or else you'll be expelled from that community and and again this is Um, where the
1: church is so crucial colin because i think then then it's trying to show how um uh, there that there is kind of a come come to christ and live, live, um, live, be, become a Christian being grafted into Christ. But then there is still amazing diversity and unity at, at, at the same time, um, in, in a way that respects difference, um, as well as, um, yeah, that there's a, a respecting of difference that I think sometimes people don't see because they think, well, being a Christian, you just have to conform in exactly the same way. But of course, it, it yeah. is much more kind of the the unity and diversity idea is is amazingly seen in in the church, in the in the church as it should be, um, which is why it's such a, an amazing witness to that unity and and diversity, to inclusivity. Yeah.
0: Well, I, I think you've already covered my my last question here but maybe this will be a good way to to put a cap and maybe put a focus on it what you're describing here dan is a culture that's been shaped by christian values and yet has rejected in large measure the crucified christ so what's what's the result when you pair, pair those two things together
1: i i want to celebrate the influence that christianity has had in the west so no. it's interesting i sometimes hear people say kind of Oh, isn't it great? It's just like the first century. We can go back to the beginning. I I, I kind of I I find that sad in that the influence that the Christian gospel has had on Western culture has been amazing. And, and, and we're seeing as the tide goes out what that means. And I don't think it's necessary. I don't think it's particularly very good. On the other hand, then there is then how do you deal with nominal Christianity and an inoculation to what people think Christianity is? Um, And what I don't want to do, and this is where I think Taylor and others are important. I think they are saying we need to factor in the 2000 years of history that have gone on and what that means. Um, But I I, I would want to I still think that some of the values that the West still want to um, uh, lord or say are important, you know, peace and uh, honesty and uh, diversity and and equality, dignity, human dignity, especially, um, they are fundamentally Christian values. And in fact, they can only really mean what they really mean based on a Christian worldview. Without that, well, as we're seeing, um, you know, Don Carson wrote, you know, the intolerance of tolerance, which is quite true. You know, tolerance has completely changed its meaning. Inclusivity means something different. All of those things we need to get, and especially human dignity, it's interesting doing a, a a little paper recently on the, the history of the concept of dignity. And Carl Harper writes this great article that you know that you know dignity in dignity meant something completely different in Roman and Greek civilization. It's only Christianity that really talks about mm. the worth of human beings just because they're human. Right. And I think we need to we need to understand that and and proclaim that.
0: i've got final three questions quick ones here for daniel strange author of making faith magnetic five hidden themes our culture can't stop talking about and how to connect them to christ dan how do you find calm in the storm
1: um i think by um in the book i use this illustration um in this The film Free Solo, which won an award, uh, Mm -hmm. Alex Honnold, Free Climbs, El Capitan. I'm not a a climber at all, but I've become fascinated (laughs) with that film. And there's a bit of the climb, which is called um, Free Blast. It looks as if he's climbing glass. Mm. And you think, how does he do it? And then when you focus in, you realise that there are little nubs and indentations. And I think one of the things I would want us to take encouragement from and calm is that because of the way that God has made human beings, there's always a point of contact. There's always a traction point. I do worry that we are we might despair to think, look, how can the gospel really make any connection with people who are just living their lives? They've got no time for anything that I would want to talk to them about. But at that, that point, we need to keep calm, carry on and just say, well, look, if Romans 1, if 1 Corinthians 1, if Acts 17, if this is truth, then there's always a point of contact. We may have to, we'll have to do hard work. We'll have to build trust in relationships. We'll have to kind of really understand where people are coming from, but there will always be a way in. And I think that is an encouragement. That does keep me calm because you can just get, I think my life, my life, my. I've been thinking a lot and about this idea of traction, but also this idea of tethering. I suppose it's how do I, I I want to be a a reformed Orthodox Christian who says Orthodox truth is solid and is foundational, is, is important, but also recognizing the contingency of history and where we are in our particular moment. And I think a lot of theological life is trying to wrestle with both wanting confession and contingency, wanting traction and wanting to be tethered and i think the calmness i would want to see is you can have both it's not one or the other you can have the tethering to historic orthodox christianity and you can find traction in any culture and if we have that then i think we can have a, we can go on a, on an adventure um, rather than panicking about falling off or just slipping down um and um that's where i find the calm in recognizing that the bible Really is the kind of um the way in which we see the world in a way that reveals the world as it really is, and that 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 gives me confidence.
0: That's great. I love that. that attraction and tethering that that's really helpful to me. Where do you find good news today, Dan?
1: I find good news in that I want to sometimes we can have such a a downer on ourselves. I do want to believe that every day people are becoming Christians. And uh, sometimes I think, especially in the UK, anyway, we we only hear bad news, or we hear we don't hear some of the the, the wonderful stories that are going on in terms of people becoming Christians. Um, and I, I always want to give students a global perspective in those lectures before I go on about how the West is going de- downhill. <laughs> that in a global sense, um, the, people are being saved ev- every day. Um, there are very incredibly faithful Christians. Yes. There is so much suffering and persecution, especially like in the last two years with everything that's going on. Um, but I, I, so that's where I, I, I find good news, and I think especially in this book, um, I, I said mentioned it to someone this morning. With Jesus Christ fulfills the magnetic points subversively. He not simply in the way, not simply because he died on the cross for our sins, which he did, but in his person he fulfills them. And it's the person and personality of Jesus that I think is such good news. And is not me because our our my relationship is is not just with a doctrine, it's with a person, Jesus Christ. And he is good news, and I can know him personally. And that's that's amazing good good news. And it does put a kind of a, a relational angle to all of this. I want other people to introduce, I want to introduce people to a person and uh that's a person that i've met who's changed my life and he can change yours as well and i think that's great news amen
0: amen last question dan what's the last great book you've read
1: well i i mean i i, I know i keep going on about him but i think the 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 jh the jh Bavink's book on religious consciousness um is 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 i think a great book it's in the jh Bavink reader and i think that's the the most mature of his writings where he talks about this idea of religious consciousness. And I've just been very, I've been um, inspired uh, by that. I mean, in terms of uh, theological reading, I mean, lots of stuff that I read that I really enjoy, but I think in terms of a book that's, that I think, wow, this is, there's a, there's a lifetimes of ex, there's a lifetime of exploration here. Bavink's book on religious consciousness. I'd, I'd uh, recommend that in the, in, in the Bavinck reader.
0: Great. Well, thanks, Dan. Author of Making Faith Magnetic, Five Hidden Themes Our Culture Can't Stop Talking About, How to Connect Them to Christ, published by The Good Book Company. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Colleen. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Gospel Bound. For more information, including past episodes, transcripts, and to sign up for my newsletter, go to tgc.org gospelbound. If you like what you've heard, you may also like my new book written with Sarah Zalstra called Gospelbound: Living with Resolute Hope in an Anxious Age. You can find it wherever books are sold.